The Gospel according to Mark, chapter 6. Somebody is trying to booby trap me. If I fall down. Mark, chapter 6. If you're uh, new with us, we, our habit is to preach verse by verse through the Scriptures. And right now we are six chapters deep in the Gospel of Mark. So Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Today we'll be looking at verses 30 through 44. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your sovereign grace in our lives, that we are here today as a testimony to your sustaining work and kindness. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your church and for the privilege to Pray, Lord, with confidence that you are our Father, that you invite us to come to you, that you delight in the songs of your saints, that you give us the gift of fellowship and intercession. And we thank you, Father, that you nourish us through your word. We pray now that you would speak to us as we look to you in your word, that you would guide us by your spirit, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things therein. We pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear words for growth and knowledge, words of encouragement and exhortation, words of rebuke, words of help and hope, words to transform our hearts and our lives to look more like Jesus. We pray now, Lord, that you would let us see your glory and that we would leave here with our faith strengthened and our hearts encouraged to proclaim your marvelous grace. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, please... Follow along as I read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. This is God's inerrant, authoritative, and life-giving word. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate. And were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. May God now bless the preaching of His Word. Well, it's been our habit for a number of years now uh, to celebrate the Fourth of July with our, our neighbors. For my, my family, we 
We get together with our neighbors in the, in the street and in our yards. Uh, we celebrate. We have a block party. Uh, since basically becoming a Jedi master in the art of smoking briskets, I've been tasked with smoking a brisket these last couple of years, while another neighbor has committed to smoking the ribs and chicken, and others have, have brought sides. And so this year, we all looked forward to this day. I had a new smoker. I had a new recipe. I was very excited. I got up at 3 a.m. 3 a.m. <laughs> I got the brisket going. I tended to it throughout the day. We were very excited when we arrived to the party. We saw our neighbors. We saw our friends. And then we were shocked to discover that the man who had committed to making the majority of the meat the chicken and the ribs, he had had a bad weekend. He decided to start drinking early. He decided he wasn't going to make any meat whatsoever. And so we had around 40 or so people staring at my 12-pound brisket, painfully aware that this was not enough food to satisfy all who were there. So what were we going to do? Now, the selfish part of me wanted to grab my brisket, get back in my truck, go back to my house, enjoy the brisket that I worked hard on all day by myself with my family, of course, but I knew that wouldn't go over well. Well, this morning, we're reading about the feeding of the 5,000, and this is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in a church anywhere who does not know this story. In fact, you would be hard-pressed uh, anyone in the world who doesn't know this story. It is the only miracle. It's the only miracle uh, recorded in all four Gospels. All four Gospel writers decided that this was such a significant event that they wanted to record it for all time in their books. And so that should tell us that there's something truly magnificent that occurs here that the Lord wants to use to change us. Now, what happened on the 4th of July in my house was not a miracle. We had neighbors that got busy whipping up sides. Somebody called Smokey Joe's and found out that, yes, they could provide some barbecue. We were very grateful for, for restaurants that were open on a holiday that, that helped us out uh, and, and salvaged the party last minute. But in fact, <laughs> what happened here what is you know, a lot of critical scholars would have you believe that what happened here is just that. They would have you believe, they would have us believe that, you know, critically that what couldn't have happened is that this, these two fish and these five loaves actually fed 5,000 men plus women and children. They believe that what happened here is a miracle of sharing, that they looked around, they saw this kid that had two loaves and five fish, and he's like, sure, I'll, I'll give it, and then everybody was moved in their hearts to say, okay, well, I, I actually, I've got some fish too, I've got some bread, and they began to pass that out. Now, as silly as that idea sounds, it's not the most preposterous um, idea of what is proposed of what happened here. Some scholars actually propose that what happened here is that Jesus was doing a, a magic trick, that Jesus and his disciples had, had plotted together, and so what they did is they, they took these, uh, this basket and they actually had a store of fish and bread hidden away, and they had all the crowds sit over here and basically... Jesus had like a basket that he was distributing from, and the disciples were back here behind him secretly refilling it as he distributed it, and so it was kind of a sleight of hand. That is a real theory that is put out there. However, it would not shock you to know that here we do not believe that what happened here is some magic trick or some sleight of hand, but that Jesus worked a true miracle. It was... Mark is telling us something significant about Jesus and how he conducts his ministry, who he is. And so this is a big deal. What Mark wants us to see is that Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd who displays his power for the provision of his people. Jesus displays his power for the provision of his people. That is our main point this morning. We are going to see that truth unfolded in three traits of our good shepherd. First, we will see that Jesus is the good shepherd who brings fullness and fulfillment. We will see that Jesus leads with astonishing care. 
And finally, we will see that Jesus provides with absolute authority. So first off, Jesus is the good shepherd who brings fullness and fulfillment. Look at the context here, okay? It starts off, the apostles return. Where did they return from? You remember just a few sections ago, just a few weeks ago, we heard about Jesus sending out His disciples. He sent out the apostles to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to heal the sick, to cast out the demons, to wield authority in His name. And, and they preach repentance and they, and they go out. And then there's this sober interruption that we heard about last week where we learn what we should expect, what faithful witnesses should expect in a world that is hostile to the gospel. What should we expect? Well, we see that in the story of of John the Baptist and Herod. We see that Herod throws this feast with rich and luxurious food, and John the Baptist calls on Herod to repent because he had married his brother's wife. He says, this is a wicked thing that you have done. And then Herod has this wicked party where, where terrible things happen. And at the end of that, John the Baptist loses his life. It's a sober call to all who follow Jesus to count the cost of discipleship, to count the cost of what it is to live as faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ and His kingdom in a foreign land. And so now Mark brings us back to Jesus and the disciples. He says that they have returned, and they tell him all that they had done and taught. They return from their mission trip, and Jesus takes them out to a desolate place. Mark makes this point emphatic by saying twice this was a desolate place that he was taking them to. Now, why is that? This whole section, this whole story is full of rich Old Testament imagery. It's rich of, it's full of theology here, and Mark is making this point right at the start. This would ring a bell in all the original hearers. The original audience would hear this, and they would say, hey, wait, this sounds familiar. A desolate place is where you would go to meet with God. A desolate place is where you would go. You think of the Israelites sojourning in the wilderness, where God met with them, where God nourished them, and He cared for them, and He led them, where he spoke to them. You think of the Israelites sojourning in the waters, or when Elijah fled from Jezebel, and he met with God in a desolate place. You think of David fleeing from Saul out in the, out in the wilderness, and he's seeking God in a desolate place. Early in his ministry, Jesus himself goes out to the wilderness for what purpose? To seek the Lord, to pray, to fast at the commencement of his public ministry. So he takes them to a desolate place. you, You have this foreshadowing that they're going to meet with God. They're going to have their souls refreshed and nourished. And then Mark makes this reference to the people being like sheep without a shepherd. Now, this isn't some simply, um, um, you know, just nice way of saying that he just had compassion on the people. He, he does that. But sheep without a shepherd is, is not some simple metaphor, but it's a rich image from the Old Testament. This brings up Moses passing the baton on to Joshua and saying, be faithful to lead these people, lead the people of God into the promised land. And then Joshua passes it on and so on and so on. God wanted faithful shepherds to lead them. And so this point of sheep being without a shepherd, what it means is, what he's saying is, he looks at the people and he says, these people are without a shepherd. These people are without a leader, someone to care for them, someone to instruct them in the way that they should go. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, the prophet is decrying the faithless shepherds who were not feeding the sheep. He calls them sheep without a shepherd. They weren't caring for them. They were focused on themselves. They were leaving the sheep vulnerable to malnourishment. They were becoming prey from their enemies. And in that chapter, the Lord declares that He Himself will come and shepherd the people directly. He says, I will shepherd them with my own hand. This is a fulfillment of that. He Himself will come and care for them and feed them and instruct them and nourish them. He will give them good pasture. James Edwards, in his commentary on the book of Mark, writes this. He says, As a metaphor, the shepherd of sheep was a common figure of speech in Israel for a leader of Israel like Moses. 
or more often of a Joshua-like military hero who would muster Israel's forces for war. It is, in other words, a metaphor of hegemony, including military leadership and victory. In His compassion, Jesus sees a whole people without direction, without purpose, without a leader. Now, it's not that they don't have religious leaders in the day. In fact, they had so many religious leaders that they had to organize them. But Jesus looks upon them, and He sees, as Ezekiel did, these shepherds were being faithless. They were not properly instructing and nourishing God's people. They were not leading God's people in the way that they should go. And so Jesus looks upon them, and He moves toward them. His compassion drives Him to lead them, to care for them, and to instruct them. And then comes the miracle itself. Every Jew present would have known when, immediately upon hearing what happened that Mark was making a direct connection to the miracles of Moses and Elisha. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Here you have the disciples asking Jesus, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And you think of the book of Numbers, chapter 11. Moses has the people of God in the wilderness. And he asks God, where can I get meat for all these people? We are out in the middle of nowhere, Lord. There is nothing in sight that they could obtain anything to eat. And God responds Himself by sending miraculous food. He sends manna from heaven. Remember this? He sends quail to feed the people of God. And then you have the story in 2 Kings chapter 4. I just I was reading 2 Kings last week in my devotional time, and you come across this story about Elisha. Elisha is tasked with feeding 100 men with only 20 barley loaves and some ears of grain. And yet what he does is he tells his servants, watch and behold the miracle of the Lord. The Lord will provide. And he begins to distribute the 20 barley loaves and the heads of grain. And it says that all ate... All were satisfied, and they had leftovers when they were done eating. Do you see what Mark is doing? Mark is, he's not just making connections. He is saying something about who Jesus is. Throughout this gospel, what Mark is doing is consistently answering the question, who is Jesus? He's describing him. He's showing, him, he's showing us what Jesus is like, how he wields authority. He's showing who he is, what his heart is like, what he teaches. Who is Jesus? He's telling us about his identity. And what Mark is saying here in vivid detail is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the good shepherd promised to come. Moses promised a shepherd to come. And Jesus comes and displays that his power is greater than Moses. He comes and shows that he is greater, he performs greater miracles than Elisha. His ministry tastes of what the anticipated messianic age would be because, in fact, that is what he came to bring. He is ushering in a new age. Mark demonstrates that Jesus has authority, authority over the storms, over the wind and the waves, over the harassed. He has authority to heal the sick and to raise the dead. Jesus is able to produce food in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness, food enough to feed 5,000 men plus the women and children who were with them. I mean, you think about that, and you could easily get to 15,000, 20,000 people that were there. And Jesus feeds them all so much that they have leftovers, leftovers that they had to collect in 12 baskets, which 12 baskets, you know, that in itself was another sign. No doubt of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples, it's all fascinating and full of biblical imagery. The more we study the book of Mark, the more we realize what a masterful storyteller. We see the rich intricacies throughout this gospel. There is so much to have here, so much to nourish our souls and to instruct us in life and faith. So much that you can understand Mark's, <laughs> his desire to simply shout with joy, who is this man? He is our good shepherd. He is the promised Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one of whom John the Baptist came to proclaim. 
This Jesus wields absolute authority, and therefore He is worthy of our allegiance. He is worthy when He calls for us to repent. We should repent. We should turn to Him and give our lives and say, Lord, lead me. Jesus displays His power for the provision of His people's need for a true shepherd because He alone is worthy of that. And so the first big picture point here is that Jesus brings fullness and fulfillment as He fulfills Old Testament foreshadows and prophecies and pre-types. He is the good shepherd. He is the true king. He is the ruler that the world so desperately needs and that the Lord longs to provide. So now let's look at our second point, how this good shepherd relates to his people. Jesus leads with astonishing care. That's our second point. Now remember the, the disciples here have, they've just returned from a, a long journey. They went out, they proclaimed the gospel, they were anointing the sick, they were casting out demons, they were traveling. And remember, Jesus sent them out without a, without a backpack. He said, don't take any supplies with you. Don't take, a, you know, don't take another stick, you know, etc. And so they come back, and they're tired. You can imagine how tired they are. You, you know, for, for those of you who drove three hours to Conroe yesterday and drove three hours back, I imagine you came home tired. You wanted rest. You probably didn't come home and say, let's get to mowing the lawn and, and doing a lot of work, meeting with people and, and spending yourselves. They'd been traveling, ministering, and they come, they come back to Jesus, and they need rest. We simply cannot serve 24 hours a day. They needed rest, and Jesus saw that. He looked at them, he observed them, and he saw their need to rest. And so Jesus' words, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. This is an important word for weary laborers. Oftentimes, so I, you know, I'm, I'm married, I have, my wife and I have five children, five sons, very grateful, we love them, and my wife uh, is busy at home uh, schooling them throughout the day, and I come home oftentimes at the end of my day, and I can see in my wife a little bit of bleary-eyedness. I had one of that experience this week where I came in, and she said, I just need five minutes, I just need five minutes, can I, can I go to my room, lay down, <laughs> And she did. She went up there for five minutes. She came back and she said, thank you so much. And I was like, oh, babe, that was like, <laughs> that was small favor. Like, come on. I mean, really? I, I didn't do anything. I mean, they're my kids. I'm not, you know. And she's like, but it was so good. I just need to be by myself in a quiet place for a few minutes. We can all identify with that, can't we? We often today fill our plates with business. I, I don't meet with hardly anyone who doesn't say in some form or fashion, when I say, how are you doing? They say, oh, man, life is busy right now. Uh, I, just, I just feel the busyness of life. Everything's coming at me constantly. The phone, uh, email, you know, the news breaks in. We're often busy usually with, with good things, but often we, we busy ourselves at the expense of our souls, constantly doing, constantly serving, wearing ourselves out for the sake of others. Now, Paul described his ministry as, as that of pouring himself out as a drink offering. And he, his was an example uh, commended as worthy of emulation. And so we know that it is good to, uh, to serve, to, to pour ourselves out. The, the slothful servant is rebuked in the Scriptures. It's good to work hard. And that said, we are still finite creatures, aren't we? We cannot just go and go and go. At some point, we, we break, we, we become strained. We see our, you know, our uh, you know, levels of restraint breaking and, and things coming out of our mouths that, that we wouldn't otherwise love to uh, have come out. We realize that we are not the Lord. I had someone share an impression this morning that uh, this week at work, they were just aware of, of their weariness. Yeah, they, they've, been, they've been working diligently. There's an individual who works hard, who works skillfully, who seeks to serve his boss and his employers and, the, uh, and, and those who you know, benefit from their product. 
And yet he was aware of his need. He felt this impression from the Lord calling him to rest. Saying, son, it's okay. I know your weariness. I know that you need to sit down at times. We don't need to feel guilty about that. That is who we are. The Lord knows that we are but dust. Here he recognizes the dustiness, as it were, of his disciples. He realizes they need rest. Not just physically, but spiritually. In fact, we are commanded to rest throughout Scripture. When Jesus invites his disciples to rest, that they might serve in the strength of the Lord that they might be refreshed in their souls. He sees this in his disciples, and so he takes them away to a desolate place. Again, James Edwards writes in his commentary, he says, the greater the demands on them, the greater their need to be alone with Jesus. Y'all, y'all have seen those, those shirts that, or the bumper sticker that says, y'all need Jesus? I say amen every time I see that. You know, my wife, you know, she can see, see, see me come home sometimes at the end of the day, and I'm weary and bleary-eyed, and she says, babe, I think you need to go spend some time with the Lord before you interact with the kids. Just go refresh your soul. We need the Lord. And we come to Him in our weakness. Oftentimes, we feel guilty that, that we have needs. We feel guilty that we're weak. We feel guilty that we need rest. But that's who we are. The Lord created us. He knows that we are but dust. We are not spiritually disembodied beings. We are mortal. Our hearts are physically embodied. One author writes that our hearts are physically embodied, they're socially embedded, and they're spiritually embattled. In other words, they are influenced by all kinds of real things in this world that we need to retreat from and go to the Lord and receive refreshment. Sometimes the most spiritual thing that you can do is to take a nap. Amen? This is instructive for us all, both for ourselves and for how we relate to others. It is good for us to work hard. Hear me well. It is good to spend ourselves. Rest and recreation are great gifts, but they're best enjoyed when they're earned through labor. But the Lord does not call us to perpetual labor. He does not insist that we do more and try harder and just keep going. Jesus says in Matthew 11 that his yoke is easy and that his burden is light. But oftentimes we think we should just press on because there's, there's still work to do. It takes discipline to go to rest when our inbox is full. To say no to, to good things. As a parent, I know when my kids are tired and worn out from a long day of school or perhaps a a road trip, that that might not be the time to launch into a long lecture or to instruct them or to to ask much of them. I know that when the Lord says, do not, fathers, do not provoke, do not exasperate your children, that's what he's talking about. And therefore, I need to help them too prioritize rest for their bodies and their souls. I want to relate to others the same way. When I am confronted with others' weakness, and I want to, uh, I want to, you, know, you guys maybe remember me sharing this before. Early on in my marriage, when I wanted to be a good spiritual leader, I used to lead my wife in prayer. It's a good thing, right? Well, she and I have different clocks. Now, we've, we've aligned our clocks in almost 20 years of marriage now. But early on, we had very different clocks. I was a late night guy. She was an early morning, early to bed. And so when she wanted to pray, it was like prime time in the evening for doing stuff. So I'm like, well, babe, I'm not going to go in the dark room and pray because I'm going to get tired and then I won't be as productive. So I would insist because I'm a good spiritual leader, I would lead her (laughs) into staying up later. And I would wait until she's pretty tired and I'm getting close to being tired. Say, okay, now it's time to pray. And then we would start to pray. And you know what happens is as I'm praying long-winded, very spiritual prayers, she's nodding off. And I'm looking at her and I'm saying, can, can you not stay awake one hour to pray? <laughs> We're called to relate to one another aware of our frailty, aware of our weakness, aware that we cannot just go and go and go. We want to relate to one another the way that the Lord relates to His disciples here, aware of their need 
for rest. And so Jesus sees their need for rest. And then what happens next is unexpected. You think the disciples are excited. They think, hey, we're going to a quiet place. We're going to get rest for our souls. We're going to get rest for our bodies. We want to take a nap. And then just as they're, they, think, they think they're going to hit their head on the pillow, and then all these crowds surround them. Verse 33 says, many saw them going, and so they raced ahead to get to their destination. Man, can you, can you imagine these disciples? I mean, they see them and they're like, oh, no, we've got to get away. And Jesus doesn't look at it that way. He, they see him, and they've been with him long enough. They know what he's doing. They're like, oh, gosh, not now. I'm tired. We're weary. But Jesus looks at the crowds. He doesn't tell his disciples to run and hide. He doesn't become annoyed doesn't act out in anger or irritation as understandable as that would be. He is not impatient or exasperated. This is so important and instructive for who Jesus is. He sees the crowds coming to him. And Jesus reveals his heart for them. He looks at them. Verse 34 says he had compassion upon them. He sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd, as people without leadership, without direction, and his heart went out to them. The Greek word translated here as compassion is used to describe only Jesus in all of the New Testament. This is, he is the only one of whom this word is used. This was a compassion that reached a level that was far deeper than mere human concern, human empathy for people in pain. Israel's leaders had failed them. Jesus looks upon them. And he sees that they need care, they need instruction, they need their souls fed and nourished before he feeds their bellies. Jesus is tired, his disciples are tired. They needed rest, and yet driven by a heart of compassion and aware of the needs all around him, he provides an astonishing level of care. Jesus knows their needs. He knows his disciples' needs, he knows the crowd's needs. He knows their fatigue. He knows their spiritual struggles. And friends, he knows yours as well. He sees us. He knows our days. He knows the demands. He knows the struggles in our hearts. He knows our weakness. He made us. There is no aspect of your life that the Savior does not see. He knows you're coming out, you're going out, and you're coming in. He knows your limitations. Do you know what your weakness and your frailty, your, your limitations, your struggles draw out of him? They draw out his compassion. We often think that the Lord gets annoyed with our weakness. Oh, Lord, if I was just stronger, if I was better, if I didn't get tired so easily, if I, if I could just serve with, with, with more elocution, if I, could, if I could be better... I know you'd be happier with me. I, I feel like the Lord is annoyed with me and he's just got his arms crossed and tapping his foot, irritated with me. But that's not what we see. His heart for you is greater than you could possibly imagine. Puritan writer John Owen says this of Jesus. He says, He is able with all meekness and gentleness, with patience and moderation, to bear with the infirmities, sins, and provocations of his people. Even as a nurse or a, or a nursing father bears with weakness of a poor infant. He's gentle. He's compassionate. Dane Ortland builds upon this. In his fantastic book, Gentle and Lowly, which incidentally, we have a, a wonderful gift given to us from Crossway. Crossway has offered to give us cases of that book, and so we, we just got them delivered this week, uh, and so soon we will be distributing these books to you. I'm so excited. Uh, if you don't already have it, we're excited to get it to you. If you already have it, we're happy to give you another copy that you can give away. It's an excellent book. Dane Ortland writes this in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says, rather than dispensing grace to us from on high, Jesus gets down with us. Imagine this. He puts his arm around us. 
He deals with us in the way that is just what we need. He deals gently with us. Friends, Jesus is, He is the good shepherd who leads us with astonishing care. It's astonishing because it's not what we expect. It's astonishing because it's not what we deserve. It's astonishing because it's exactly what we need. He leads us with astonishing care. He does not lead us in the wilderness to leave us alone and without provision. Rather, when He takes us into the wilderness, it's because He wants to work deeply in us. Are you, do you feel like you're in a season of desolation? Do you, feel, do you find yourself in a, in a moment where you feel like you're in the wilderness, in a season of trial? Are you more aware of your weariness than of the provision of the Lord for your life? Is there ever a moment when you're tempted to wonder, are the promises of God true for me? Where is the peace? Where is the comfort? Where is the strength? Friends, if you're, if you're tempted to, to wonder if God knows your struggles or cares about your pain, this passage is a glorious provision for you. Mark chapter 6 displays Jesus' power for our provision, but he often does so, he does so in ways that we don't expect. The disciples expected rest for their bodies, but Jesus decided that more important than rest for your bodies, there was a greater need that He was going to serve them both now and for the rest of their lives. He was going to do something that would change them. You think about, you, you think about the trade-off there, okay, because there are moments where we, we need a nap. I mean, you know, please, Lord willing, I will take a nap later today. Um, so we need that. But you think in this moment, if they got what they wanted, the Lord answered their request for a nap, and they missed out on this miracle of what the Lord does. Think about which one of those led to greater good in their lives. But they couldn't see it at the time. They, and they didn't get them. There's no indication in this passage. One of the astonishing things here is that as you read this story, there's nothing in here that says that the disciples got it. In fact, we, we know they don't get it because after this, they keep doing the same thing. In fact, Jesus feeds, he feeds 4,000 more just to say, guys, if you didn't see it the first time, let me do this again. Okay, so he's doing something to, to work something in their lives, to teach them something about who he is, to strengthen them and to equip them, to change them for the rest of their lives. He was going to demonstrate his power in a way that they would never forget. Before the people even asked. He was already at work on the plan that he had unfolded. But in our weariness, and our need, Jesus continues to invite us to come to him for grace. The way that we bring glory most to God in our need is not by being stronger and not asking him for things. No, the way that we glorify God is by asking him for more grace. He never wearies of giving it to us. It is the very reason He came. And not just us, but remember, it's not simply the disciples that He cares for here. It's the crowds as well. They're not an interruption into His ministry. They're the very people that He has come for. Jesus is our good shepherd, and we can go to Him for rest, for strength, and for care. And we also want to look at those all around us. And to invite others into that rest as well. We want to both reflect the heart of Christ as well as to direct people to the care of Christ. Friends, do you see the crowds as the Savior sees them? When you look upon your neighbors and your coworkers, what do you see? J.C. Ryle asks us, are we like Jesus, tenderly concerned about the souls of the unconverted? Do we, like Him, feel deep compassion for all who are as yet sheep without a shepherd? Do we care about the impenitent and the ungodly near our own doors? Do we care about the heathen, the Jew, the Mohammedan, the Roman Catholic in foreign lands? And friends, if, if the answer is no, the answer isn't, it's not condemnation. It's not, oh, bad Christian the answer is to look more to Jesus. The answer is to see Him in His glory and His grace, to meditate upon the way that He relates to you, to be 
awestruck in awe and wonder at His kindness. Let us look to Jesus and be freshly amazed by His grace. Let us consider afresh the wonder that He has ransomed us from the wrath that we deserve by His blood, by His atoning death. He has called us out of darkness, not because we are worth saving, but because of His love and driven by His compassion. And therefore, we want to look out at the world. We want to look at the crowds. We want to look at our neighbors as I pull into my driveway and I'm looking for my nap today. If my neighbors come out, Lord, give me strength in this moment. Let us see as the Savior sees. We want to take part in the miracle as we pass out the bread of life, even as these disciples took part in this miracle as they passed out the bread and the fish. This leads to our final point. Jesus is the good shepherd who provides with absolute authority. Now, there are a lot of moments in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus. There's a lot of moments throughout the Scriptures that I would have just loved to be there for. You know what I mean? Have you ever read a story and thought, man, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall to witness that, to see his face in that moment. And these exchanges between him and the disciples are way up there. Look with me at verse 35. The disciples were promised rest. They're they're on their way to a desolate place for rest. They haven't forgotten about their need. They're affected by Jesus' compassion, but here in verse 35, you see their patience is wearing thin. Now, Mark doesn't tell us which disciple actually asks this question, but in John's gospel, John outs him. Mark's kind. Mark's like, hey, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I want to I protect your reputation for all time. John's like, nah, it was Philip. <laughs> Philip did this. Philip... <laughs> goes to Jesus, he takes upon himself to be the spokesperson for the disciples, and he says, hey, Jesus, look, I don't know if you've noticed, but the sun's going down. We are in the middle of nowhere. We're all tired. We're hungry, and these people, surely they're hungry too. I mean, he's, he's concerned about them. That's, that's his main concern. There's a lot of people here, Jesus, maybe, maybe 5,000 men, then you add the women and the children. They look hungry, and there is nothing to eat. Jesus, why don't you, here's an idea, why don't you send them away to get something for themselves to eat? Now, you have to love how Jesus responds. This is one of those moments. Look at how Jesus responds. You give them something to eat. I mean, what what kind of facial stuff was going on with Jesus in that moment? I imagine him smiling. I imagine him looking at Philip and saying, why don't you give him something to eat? (laughs) You're like, we're kind of coy, you know, like, you know. (laughs) Philip responds, I mean, it just gets better. Philip responds, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them? You know, I mean, it's been said that there is no such thing as a stupid question, but Philip's pushed the envelope pretty far here. You're going to respond to the Son of God with that? You see, Philip and the other disciples' problem, what they did wrong is that they had grossly underestimated their wealth. They saw, they they went out and searched. You guys know this story. They found five loaves and two fish, and, and they weren't impressed. But what was wrong with that? What was wrong with it that they didn't get it? They had been with the Lord they had, wa- they had seen water turned into wine. They saw Jesus' authority over the wind and the waves. They witnessed him cast out demons, a legion of demons into pigs. They saw him heal the sick and raise the dead. So why didn't they understand what Christ could do in this situation? What is too hard for the Lord? The problem is the disciples had a defective view of Christ. That was their problem, and and very often, friends, that is the root of our problem. Where is God in the picture? John Newton 
he, he wrote one time that the most challenging part of the Christian life is keeping his eyes fixed upon Jesus. And that's, it's understandable because, you know, you imagine being in, in the storm with the wind and the waves, and, and there's really wind and waves. There are really circumstances that are, that are hard. We really suffer. We get overwhelmed by our circumstances. And Jesus invites us to look to him. Do not fear, he says time and again. What David, David Garland in his commentary on this book says, he says, the disciples squawking, <laughs> I love that word, they're squawking, also reveals that they still have no inkling that Jesus has divine power to supply whatever the need. You see, the disciples focused on the obstacles. Certainly, there was nothing in this inventory of, of five loaves and two fish that bolstered their confidence, that bolstered their faith, that the people could be fed on the spot. But Jesus looked upon this small amount of food, and he was not intimidated. He was not overwhelmed. We are insufficient like the disciples to satisfy, but Jesus is sufficient. We want to point people not to ourselves, but to him. He is more than enough. His provision, his storehouses, they know no bounds. We tend to focus on what we lack. Jesus focuses on what we have. He is more than enough. And so Jesus instructs them to see what they have, five loaves, two fish, Jesus is not put off. You know the story from here. After giving thanks to God the Father, Jesus begins to distribute the food through the disciples, and the strangest things happen. Each time they reached into the basket, out came more bread, out came more fish, and all the people are satisfied. This was no mere snack. It was a satisfying meal. It was a fulfilling meal. And then in keeping with Jewish custom, Jesus then commands that nothing go to waste. And so he orders the disciples to fill 12 large baskets with the leftovers. 12 baskets of food to spare, likely a view to the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples as the core, as the fulfillment of the new Messianic community. But it's also likely that we are to see here that Jesus was providing abundantly for his people in such a way that they all, listen, what they came with, the five loaves and the two fishes, they're carrying away more than what they came in with. Isn't that something? It's abundant provision. While they went to him with a complete lack of resources, they see Jesus meet their need with limitless resources. All too often, our response to the Lord's testing is just the same as Philip's. We measure the need, we quantify our inadequate resources, and we resign in hopelessness. We say, no, it's, it's too much. I can't do that. It's all beyond us. The need cannot be met. Like Philip, I often think this way. I put limits on what God can do, given my lack of resources, my lack of discernible gifting. Too often I'm guilty of trusting in my own resources, and I limit what God can do through me in my life. Our problem often is that we tend to focus on our own inadequacy and we become pre preoccupied with that. We become discouraged and downcast because we are looking at the bread and the fish and all the people rather than looking to the Savior. Look at who's with you. He who is with us is greater than he who is against us, right? I mean, you just imagine that. You imagine that moment. I heard a story one time that uh, this guy was at a Subway restaurant, and he stands in line, and he gets to the front of the Subway. You guys have all been to Subway. I mean, I, Subway was big back in my day. I used to go there all the time, and they had these, you know, these big subs, and, and this man gets to the front of the line, and he looks at the lady, and he says, hey, do you think that that sandwich there can feed 5,000 people? You got a teenager working back there, and she's like, oh, this is this guy's weird. <laughs> uh, no. He's like, no, no, no. Do you think that sandwich can feed 5,000 people? And the lady's like, I, I mean, we've got, a, we've got a party sub that feeds like 20 people. 
Uh, you could get a bunch of those. And he's like, no, no, no. Do you think that sandwich can feed 5,000 people? She says, no, it can't. And he says, that's because you don't know my God. That man's faith was in the right place. <laughs> he might be applying it in a, in a, in a weird moment. I'm not recommending that you go out and do that today at, at the restaurants nearby. But here's what I want you to leave with today. I want you to leave with a greater view of God than of your circumstances. I want you to see that, that Jesus is bigger than your limitations. He has more resources than your lack. He can overcome your weakness. You see, the key to our provision is to see that Jesus is not discouraged as we are over our lack, over our weak, over, over our meager offering. Indeed, the very point in our weakness is to look to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. Mark is asking the question, who is this Jesus? He is our good shepherd. He leads us with astonishing care. He has astonishing resources, and He provides for His people. He sees our weakness. He knows our struggles. He knows our pain. He has compassion upon the crowds. He deals with us in gentleness and patience, and He is committed to our good. He is not repelled by us. Our weakness, rather, is exactly what qualifies us to receive from Him. There is more compassion in Christ than weakness in us. So friends, this week I want to encourage you to fly to Him. I want to invite the, the worship band to, to come back to the stage to lead us in one final song. And I want to encourage you to set your hearts upon our good shepherd, to go to Him in your need, to go to Him in your weariness, when the plan seems to be interrupted, when you're smacked in the face with difficult circumstances and your own limitations, the Lord is up to something good, for He has declared it to be so. Please join me in prayer. Well, Father, we return again and, and thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, to us. We thank you for this gathering. We thank you for the opportunity to hear from you through your word. And I pray, Lord, that the truths in your word in Mark chapter 6 would affect us this week. As we leave here today, as we, our, our trials haven't just disappeared, you don't promise to just make them go away but you promise to be with us in the midst of them. You display your power for the provision of your people. And Lord, I pray this week that we would leave here today with firm conviction over your power at work in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would lift our gaze now to see that you are our good shepherd, that you are with us, that your ways are above our ways and that your strength is more than ample supply for our lack. I pray that you would please send us out now with hearts encouraged to sing anew in the Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name.